0: Investing is an infinite game. In a game, a player can formulate a strategy based on the available resources, the apparent variance of the environment, and the metagame of the other actors involved. For an investor, the board game includes companies, currencies, and people. A successful game player can model their actions mathematically. They can describe a thesis for an in-game decision with clear language. Game players who reason through gut feeling do not perform well unless their gut is aligned with correct mathematical heuristics. The same is true for investors. An investor who is going to be successful in the long term will be able to explain their investment thesis crisply. Each investment represents a bet with net positive expected value. The expected value of an investment is the sum of all potential probability weighted future outcomes of a business. Each of these potential expected outcomes is the anticipated outcome times the probability that the investment works out in that anticipated way. Brian Singerman is a computer scientist and a partner at Founders Fund. He's on the board of Affirm, AltSchool, Emerald Therapeutics, and a variety of other companies in disparate areas. He also plays a lot of board games. Brian was fun to talk to because he was willing to field questions from an expansive range of topics. And he answered them so quickly and concisely that I started to get nervous that I was going to run out of things to ask him. I was worried that I would have to create some contrived question about whether we're living in a simulation. But luckily I didn't have to. We stayed fairly close to the topics of his investments and gaming. Many of the businesses that Brian has invested in do not have a well-defined historical precedent. If a venture capital investor was trying to make bets in defined sectors, that investor would probably overlook a business like Forward, which is a vertically integrated healthcare company. They're going to be on the show in the near future. And also Cloud9, which is a collection of e-sports teams. These kinds of investments don't have a precedent. If an investment does not have a historical precedent, it's harder to reason about it by analogy. You have to judge that investment by fundamental reasoning. The current market, the capability of the founders, and the economics of the business model. Those are fundamentals. In many professions, reasoning by analogy will work out perfectly fine. You can pattern match on the past and use that to justify your decisions for the future. But if your professional livelihood depends on reasoning by fundamental principles... You get trained to assess situations that do not have precedent. And it often feels like life does not have precedent. It often feels like we are in strange, unique times. And because of that, I found it quite refreshing to talk to Brian. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Brian Singerman, you are a partner at Founders Fund. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You play games. You play board games and card games and fighting games. And most tabletop games are synchronous. You have time to think and be deliberate in board games. Fighting games, on the other hand, are asynchronous. You're constantly under assault, but you still have to have an overall strategy What are the skill sets that you have developed in these two different types of games, the asynchronous games and the synchronous games? What are the types of of skill sets that you've developed as an investor through these
1: games? Sure. In terms of the strategic, more methodical, think through the moves type of games, I mean, to me, I look at venture capital as anytime I look at a company, regardless of stage, regardless of sector, regardless of anything else. I have to answer the following three questions. And I don't think any of them is an easy question to answer. Number one, is it a big enough market, right? So founders, the fund that we're investing out of now, Founders Fund 6 is a $1.3 billion fund. You know, We have to understand making investments that are going to move the needle on a fund that size. And so is the market actually big enough to support a very large company? Question number two, does it have some sort of existing moat? right? And not like, oh, if they do this and this and this, but does the company have some sort of existing moat? And that can be anything. I'm open to that being you know, all sorts of different things, but it has to have a real existing moat. And question three, does it have the founder and management team to take it from that current existing moat all the way through the strategic huge market endpoint? and a lot of that thought is the same as playing these strategy games right like whenever you're playing these strategy games there's something that your team or your you know your side has that theoretically the other players don't and how do you exploit that properly
0: now if i wanted to be the best tabletop gamer in the world Would it be good to cross-train in asynchronous fighting games? Is there any value to be gained from those? Or is my time spent better doubling down on the synchronous tabletop games?
1: There's the question of what you do for fun, and then there's the question of what you're doing professionally. And from a professional standpoint, I've always, you know, much to the (laughs) chagrin of my wife, but I always take the time to double down on the thing on my moat right? On the things that I know that I'm better at than anybody else. And I always protect that. And I always continue to get better at that rather than (laughs) putting a lot of skill points into other things, which is maybe the right way of doing on the professional side, but not necessarily the best answer on the personal side. And I think that goes with games too. I mean, just you're probably like, let's say you're a professional eSports player. You may end up being better at the game that you're playing if you just focus on that game, that being said, you still have to have fun (laughs) and occasionally do other things.
0: Indeed. So you played enough games that I'm sure you think about game design to some degree. There are games that you prefer over other games and you can probably enumerate design reasons why certain games are preferable. And one thing I always wonder about games is why the mechanism of in-game gambling hasn't gotten used much. So, in poker, you can make a real financial bet as an offensive action. Poker is wildly popular, but it still seems to be one of the rare games that actually offers this mechanism of the in-game wager. And I think investing is kind of cool because it's you actually do get to look at it as a game and you have the action of the in-game wager. But why hasn't this action, the in-game wager game mechanism, why hasn't that permeated more games than the antiquated games of Las
1: Vegas? Well, first of all, I think it has like backgammon, right? You can argue the doubling cube is exactly that, right? I mean, that can be used as an in-game wager and in-game, you could take that several ways. But I think for many of the other games, it kind of just hasn't had to. I mean, poker would be a pretty dull game without that aspect. It's kind of core to it. And so I think it would just be an example of finding a game where that part was core to the game rather than on the side, right? So obviously, it's extremely poker it's extremely popular on the side of any game, right? The gambling aspect is just not necessarily core to very many games. But I, I don't think that there's any reason why it couldn't be or why it won't necessarily be in the future. I think you do find a lot of people, in, especially in the esports world, especially before esports started picking up as a Professional venture in the way that it has now, who absolutely were doing that, and we're just betting on their side as part of a core piece of things. I mean, people do this in pool all the time, right? You could argue that wagering is a core piece of pool. So I don't know; it's just a matter of like what what the game needs. Mm. How are esports intersecting with the gambling world? In numerous ways. I mean, so betting on esports is extremely popular with even within an esport, Like you've heard of unbundling or opening packages and kind of like spending some money and seeing if you get back some really really rare item within the game and this has been going on for forever so yeah both on the betting on the side and the in-game packages Mm. you've spent some time playing
0: tournaments i read that you won a settlers of Catan tournament playing tournaments for money is not taboo so even children are able to enter these tournaments why is tournament play more widely sanctioned by society when cash game play of, of various types of games like the in-game exchange of financial instruments why is that not more
1: widespread Again the in-game exchange of financial instruments I think is a matter of like what the core game is I think in-game exchange of financial instruments happens all the time and again, I gave pool as an example, like you can go to any pool hall in the country and you're going to find people wagering on pool. So it's like it's just a matter of more what is the natural state for the for for the game. I mean, in-game wagering happens on every sport all the time. Right. Yeah. It's just a matter of like finding, I mean, players to take the other side of the bet. <laughs>
0: So strategies within games differ between finite games and infinite games. So a single iteration of a board game is an example of a finite game. On the other hand, the summation of all your cash game sessions over time within poker, that would be an infinite game. What are the important strategic differences to be aware of when evaluating a decision in the context of a finite game versus an infinite game?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that very much relates to fund investing versus individual angel investing. When you're investing out of a fund, right, with a set with a specific set pool of capital, that is a finite um, system, as you're talking about. Whereas if you're just investing your personal money, you're doing personal angel investing, you could argue that that is, I mean, nobody has infinite amount of money, but there's you're still only wagering your own money, you're investing your own money. So one could argue that's more of the the infinite scenario you're describing, there's no finite end to it. And so the style of investing is very, very, very different. I would say on those, right? When, when you're just investing your own money, and it's just, it's, there's no finite end to it. You're just kind of investing your own money. You're probably looking for different returns. You're looking to invest in anything that you think will make money. And that's great. Versus a fund where you do have to think through more, Well, what are the actual returns here?
0: Hmm. And is there also a notion to thinking about your reputation, for example, versus, uh, you know, if you were looking at investing as a finite game, in a particular instance, you might be willing to sacrifice long-term reputation versus if you're looking at it as an infinite game, then reputation is much more important.
1: No, that I disagree with on. Uh, If you're, even if you're doing a finite, playing a finite game, you assume you're going to be playing another game. So your reputation is uh, just as critical, if not more. If you are playing a finite game with somebody, and they don't want to, that you you do you are you are a jerk during the game, and they don't want to play with you anymore. Like, well, that doesn't look too sound too good for your prospects of playing that game again. Mm. So, if you want to keep, you can look at that. Like, each fund might be a finite thing, but the profession or the you know doing venture capital or the doing whatever profession you're doing that that part would fall more under your infinite category infinite games they usually have
0: an evolving meta game how is the meta game changing in venture capital
1: i mean i think it changes all the time one of our core one of you know the core thesis that i've had is don't have a specific thesis and in fact adapt or die <laughs> we we don't have pride of the past kind of um, things, wherever the game changes, we're, we're going to go. Like, for instance, I remember in you know 2008, we were very famous for having invested in Facebook and doing a bunch of consumer internet stuff, right? So people just assume, oh, you're just going to keep going on this consumer internet stuff. And no, the answer is you go wherever the awesome returns are going to go, which could be from told something somewhere completely different than what you were doing before which then leads to just having a completely sector agnostic strategy. So no, we, we are constantly adapting and we f- fully believe in adapting or dying.
0: How does the, the time horizon of a business's distance to developing that moat or developing the profitability that it can reap from the moat? How does the, the time
1: horizon of a business factor into the financing structure? It doesn't usually because if you can't see how something is going to be a big company within, you know, call it 15 years, then it's too hard to even know what the world is going to look like in 20 years, (laughs) let alone what a specific company is. So that's not the time horizon on these things unless it's, yeah, the time horizon does not often uh, come into my mind. Most of the times you can tell on these businesses within 5-10 years if they're going to, you know, be working. And that's fine within the life cycle of a fund. To give a sample for your type of investment
0: that you would make, we can run through some of your portfolio companies. So you're a board director for Emerald Therapeutics, which makes the Emerald Cloud Lab. How will biology change as the barrier to entry for experimentation gets easier and you can delegate experimentation like you would the spinning up of a server?
1: I mean, hopefully we get. Hopefully, it leads to a ton more cures and a lot more, you know, advancement forward of of the space. You know, like one of the things we're always concerned with is, well, how do you get the co- in the price of drug discovery, drug development, drug sales way down? And one of the ways is, well, you speed up the, co- the you speed up the process and way lower and significantly lower the cost of innovation. So I'm very supportive. supportive of things that lower the cost of innovation and Emerald cloud lab is one is a perfect example of a company that is lowering the cost of innovation in an otherwise extremely expensive space. I did a show with a, with a different company that's has similar
0: developments to the the Emerald cloud lab. And it sounded like it's very early days in, in terms of the, the machines that you can, wire together and that it's often a process of reverse engineering the apis of the whatever whatever large piece of, of biological machinery you're, you're trying to use are the the building blocks for building a cloud lab are they getting more updated like the pcr machines or whatever biological machines you need to build a cloud lab
1: well i mean one of the things that Emerald cloud lab does is convert those machines which are great machines but those are machines that were not written for engineers <laughs> right so one of the that's one of the core things that emerald cloud lab does is take those machines which are great at what they do and convert them into a form that the masses can absolutely use remotely and so one of the things they do is they have to you know they have to put modern day apis on top of machines that may not have been written for it so but it doesn't really matter if the machines have that themselves because emerald does a great job of making those if they don't exist. You're not a biologist by training. What was your process for developing
0: enough of a competency in the field of biology that you could add value?
1: I think there's a lot of value to be added in ways that are not necessarily just the core science, right? You're either investing in a team that knows how to do their core business or the core piece of their business better than anybody, or you're making the wrong investment. And so my value add to Emerald is not having a lengthy scientific discussion with those guys about, you know, machines that I don't really know how they operate or even processes that I don't know how they operate, but probably rather on, you know, the business side of things on the strategic side of things, right? So I'm not necessarily having to add, add value to the core, especially for these science teams. There's lots of other ways in which uh, it's interesting for me to be working with them.
0: You're on the board of Postmates. This is a crowded market, depending on how you view what market you're in. Assuming you do agree that it's a crowded market, how do you break down and understand the moat for a business when you're in a crowded market?
1: Yeah, um, it is definitely a crowded market. Postmates has certain strategic advantages that nobody else has. For instance, Postmates, one could argue is a top brand, especially in Los Angeles, right? It's actually a verb in lots of places in Los Angeles. Okay. So how do you take that, what you have that nobody else has, right? And stretch it from there and win the end game from there. So there's certain advantages that Postmates has, there's certain advantages that all of the other companies have, whether it's cash or, you know, being a verb in some other places or being part of a much larger company, you know, a la Uber Eats, right? So and they're all taking their current motes, of which Postmates absolutely has one, and trying to stretch it from there. So that's what we do. We do the best of our ability to play with the strengths that we have that nobody else has and exploit those.
0: Speaking about brand more generally, how do you quantify the value of a of a brand as a moat? Because like a while ago, you might have said Duracell batteries, you know, the brand Duracell is is high quality. Now I get Amazon Basics. Batteries. I mean, is that, is that because the brand was not as valuable or because Amazon has a stronger brand than Duracell?
1: No, I think Duracell didn't do a good job of adapting or dying. They did have a huge moat. I mean, if Duracell had done, been able to do the distribution strategy that Amazon had done, but with the Duracell brand, I think it would have been a different story, right? Sometimes the problem is you develop a big enough brand and then you rest on your laurels. Brand is a moat, it's not a guarantee of forever winning. And so you have to take that and continue to push on that, right? Like I I look at these things not as game over kind of scenarios, but rather, okay, we have this moat. How do we exploit it? Even for larger companies, for $50 billion, $100 billion companies, we have this moat. How do we exploit it? It's not a game of just resting on your laurels just because you have a bigger brand than somebody else. Founders Fund invested in
0: DeepMind. Many people Lauded the victory of AlphaGo from DeepMind, and obviously it was a tremendous achievement. But Go is a game like poker or chess in that it doesn't really evolve. The game pace, the game pieces are, are very well defined; they're easily explained. And this is not true of a game like Dominion or Magic: The Gathering or other games where you have evolving game pieces how long do you think it'll be till we see an AI that can perform well in an environment with the high dimensionality of the game pieces?
1: Yeah. So I think what you're describing, I would classify it as how often the meta changes, right? And when you've got games where developers are always either releasing expansions or patches or upgrades, clearly that's going to force change the meta of the game, right? Even in stuff like chess and Go, the meta uh, still changes right like what AlphaGo did was deploy a strategy that like humans would not have thought about and that actually changed the meta of the game what i do think is that it's a lot slower um in games where there are fixed pieces and there's no patching and no upgrading right versus in games where there is i would argue that the meta in league of legends changes quite quicker than in basketball but the meta of the game in basketball still changes even if the rules don't change. So I do think that those, things, those games are changing and evolving and not solved, right? Because the meta will change even if it's at a slower pace than something like a League of Legends.
0: So you don't think metagame is just a byproduct of the fact that humans can't evolve, uh, can't understand the entire decision space and therefore are operating in places of, of local...
1: Local maxima of the decision space. It's not just that, right? Because part of figuring out the meta is knowing what the other player is going to do, and if the other player is more or less likely to make a certain move, that factors into the game as well, not just the ultimate decision tree, right? I see. So, so with AlphaGo, was it was it the case that the was
0: AlphaGo training on information from Lisa Doll?
1: I'm not familiar exactly with what AlphaGo mm. was training on, right? Like, I mean, we. We were involved with DeepMind long before uh, AlphaGo was even a... (laughs) I think they had gotten the Atari simulator to run well when we were working with them. So I'm not sure what it was trained on. But I would be willing to bet that AlphaGo has not solved Go, right? Like I think it probably did a good job of solving for, if you will, the current Meta. But would I say that it solved it and that there's no way that uh some other, whether it's AI or human, could come up with something unique that stumps off a of go? Of course, I of course I would not say that. Like I think there's definitely room to evolve still.
0: Interesting. So let's imagine a universe in which you could model all of the moves in Go. So
1: tic-tac-toe. You're talking it's like is it you're asking, is it an advanced tic-tac-toe? Right. Maybe, but the delta between tic-tac-toe and go, right, is there's it's The amount of moves somebody could make or something could make is still relevant here, right? In terms of, I mean, you obviously could enumerate the set of every move and every possible counter move in Go. Right. But I think that from a game analyzation perspective of where you are at a certain time in a game, I'm not, I'm not sure if we're done evolving on that game, whereas we're clearly done evolving on tic tac toe. Hmm. I'm just not sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, because it seems like it seems like tic tac toe to me, but just with a bigger branching factor.
1: And you may be right, but would I be willing to bet that we that AlphaGo has solved it? No. <laughs> whereas I hear what you're saying in terms right. of things like Magic or League of Legends or whatever of yeah. offering an upgrade or a patch. Well, that by definition changes the game, and you've got to reevaluate the set of things. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I just, I don't think we're there yet mm. on go. Right.
0: You're involved with both Oscar Health and Forward. These are both fully integrated. Well, I don't know about fully integrated, but vertically integrated healthcare providers. How do you see the market of vertically integrated healthcare providers evolving?
1: Well, I would call Oscar less a vertically integrated healthcare provider. And I would call Oscar much more on the, on the payer side, but a very consumer focused payer, whereas Forward is clearly a vertically integrated provider. Um, Oscar offers a lot of those, ser- some services as well to its customers, but those are to its customers. And I do see Forward as, you know, a more vertically integrated provider versus Oscar, which is a full-on, you know, consumer-focused pair. Well, I was asking just about how you see vertically integrated healthcare providers evolving more generally. I see there's a lot of technological benefits that Forward can bring to the table, even if it's as simple as If they've figured out a way to trigger behavior change, right? If they can figure out a way to have a relationship with the patient, such that the patient does, you know, acts in more healthy ways, then great. That can play a huge role. And a lot of times being fully a full stack, vertically integrated company is very helpful there because then the patient doesn't have to use, you know, 20,000 different things, right? They can kind of go to one place, Or whether it's seeing a doctor, or getting reminders about taking their medicines, or reminders about checking their blood pressure, or getting their genetic scan, right? It's kind of in one place, and so you can see the consumer having a relation, or the consumer, the patient having a relationship with one company that takes care of all of that for you. So you don't have to have you know a hundred different relationships, and that is a huge advantage of a company like that.
0: There's a lot of obvious low hanging fruit that we would love to have in a, in a healthcare provider that we can think about? Things like, oh, it'd be great to get genome sequenced if you went to the doctor's office or have, a, have the doctor take your genome sequencing seriously. Uh, you know, there's, it would be great to have a doctor not have to manually enter in healthcare notes when they're, when they're diagnosing you. These are things that get talked about a lot. Are there any more subtle elements of he- the healthcare system that your time with Oscar or Forward or or somewhere else any axioms that the healthcare system has adopted that you think will be disproven or or will will change in the future
1: well i don't know about disproven but those companies both Oscar and Forward in their respective domains are extremely focused on the design right and this is something that i think has been taken you know not taken seriously by Definitely not by payers in the past and probably not by most providers, but in the same way that having your you know doctor take your genetics seriously to not having to enter data, the design of the place is extremely important to a company like Ford. And that's a perfect example of something that's maybe a little bit more subtle that make people feel better about going to the doctor.
0: Amazon was underestimated for a very long time. And we now can see how big its moats are why did people underestimate amazon for such a long period of time
1: they thought it was just a low margin <laughs> business and that wasn't exciting like most sof- most software people are focused on these like huge high margin bits over atoms kind of businesses and so something like amazon was less sexy because you're dealing with just a huge volume very low margin business it's hard
0: Yeah. Are there any high, uh, low margin, high volume businesses that you've found yourself investing in recently?
1: Absolutely. But I'm not going to discuss them. (laughs) But yes, it's certainly like it's part of adapt or die. You absolutely might be looking for, you know, if everybody else in Silicon Valley is looking for, oh, what's that next ridiculously high growth, you know, high margin, high growth. Well, who knows what the business model is, but we'll figure it out later kind of company. You probably go somewhere else. So certainly one place one could look is in... You know, lower margins, maybe higher profitability, maybe slower growth, but real business kind of uh, ways. Over a ten-year time horizon, how impactful do you expect cryptocurrencies to be? I don't know; probably very. But I'm a very long-term believer in you know Bitcoin specifically. I have no if, if you ask me about any of the um, you know, teen others, I'm going to have <laughs> no opinion on them. Yet, I think Bitcoin has done extremely well as a stored value, a trusted store value platform that is extremely hard to hack the Bitcoin blockchain, right? And so, I think there's a huge value from that. So, yeah, I'm a long-term believer in that. I'm not going to make any comments on any of the other cryptocurrencies. And how much
0: of that faith in Bitcoin that you have is due to the brand of Bitcoin?
1: Oh, so two things here. So, I think it's both the, the volume right? Like it's very difficult to hack the Bitcoin blockchain when so many players are bought in and so many people are mining. It's just really hard to take over, you know, more than half of that. So part of it is functional, but absolutely a lot of it is brand, right? It's kind of the one that people have realized, oh, I've heard of that. Oh, I've succeeded. And that's a huge win versus some new crypto that that people are not sure if they can trust.
0: Cryptocurrencies have several innovative features there's the potential for decentralization there's more fine-grained asset ownership there's the digitization of contracts there's the open sourcing of the securities markets what are the underrated and overrated aspects of cryptocurrencies
1: i mean i think the an underrated you didn't even say the stored value aspect of bitcoin which i think is extremely underrated mm-hmm. versus having it be high transactional ease of transaction cheaper anything Right. Like, I think that the stored value aspect of that is the, probably still the most underrated aspect of, of Bitcoin. And in terms of other innovations one could do with decentralized crypto based blockchain technology, I, I leave that to the entrepreneurs.
0: Do you have any forecast for how the traditional financial industry will adapt to the
1: growing use of cryptocurrencies? I no forecast. I think a lot some of them will adapt to the modern days and then go with it and will thrive and some will and there'll be some room for traditional lots of room for traditional finance. There's lots of room for adopting crypto into your strategy. And I don't think there's going to be one right way to do things. And I don't think there's one right prediction of what's going to happen for each of these companies.
0: As a venture investor, you're making large long term bets and that's that's the nature of, of venture capital. As an individual investor, you could make smaller rational bets on shorter term time horizons. For example, the when the cryptocurrency market was getting bid up for for no
1: reason, do you spend any of your time playing in the bubble markets or do you just avoid them? I don't. I don't trust myself as a short term investor. I see no reason that it's not a fine strategy for some people, but I know what I'm good at You seem to be a poker guy, so I know when I'm the fish at the table (laughs) and I know when I know something, right? And when it comes to short term trade, daily trading, you know, bubble betting, news betting, I'm the fish at the table. What I know is long term strategic value creation. So that is all that I focus on.
0: Is that long term strategic value creation? particularly at the, the earlier stages of, of a company? Because I mean, long-term strategic value creation does take place after a company has gone public.
1: Sure, or when a company is bigger than more public, most public companies, right? Like I spend a ton of time with Airbnb. So no, it's not just for the earliest stage companies. Like this is, again, I think the best companies are the ones that don't just sit on their current moats and think they're gonna last forever, but ones that use that to take the next step strategically. And so that that goes for any stage. This is why we are totally stage agnostic. We do not just do early stage investing here.
0: Now, Airbnb is a company that could spend a lot of time and is spending a lot of time doubling down on its core competency. Uh, Eventually, it will have that core competency so ironed out that it it will expand creatively into into other areas. I know it's expanding creatively into other areas right now, but it's it's such a green field that there is a, a question of the proportion of time and resources that should be spent on greenfield opportunities versus doubling down on the core competency. We don't have to speak about Airbnb specifically, but if you take a, a company that's in Airbnb's position, you could even take a Stripe, for example, You know, a company that has so much greenfield,
1: but also so much core competency to double down on, how do you allocate resources? I mean, this is what the best founders and the best management teams know how to do, right? Like, You can't sit on your laurels on your existing moats but you have to expand. And so you have to do two things, right? You have to use your existing moats and you have to use your existing stack, if you will, to both keep pushing on that existing front, but also taking on new businesses. And the best companies are the ones that can leverage their strengths to do both, not just start something brand new, but leverage their strengths to do both. So for instance, Airbnb, I'm happy to talk specifically about this one, you know, has (laughs) very extreme moats um, in certain places. And they need to use that to leverage both dominance in the homes market as well as start to focus on new businesses like Experiences that are using the moats that they've established from the homes business to trigger a start to the Experiences business. And they're doing extremely well at balancing that.
0: And when you're in that position where you have the greenfield as well as the core competency doubling down options... You probably are in a position where you could raise additional financing, you could get debt, you could raise a Series F, however late it is. How does the question of financing factor into that?
1: I mean, it's totally idiosyncratic and based on on a company-company basis, right? It's totally a matter of what the company needs. And I'm not going to get into Airbnb financials here, but you know, if Airbnb chose to raise money, that I'm sure that they would be successful at doing so, you know, if that's what the company needed. But this is completely company by company based, there's no general strategy for this.
0: And when considering the option between private financing and and going public in, in the later stages of a company, why has there been a shift to emphasis on, on further later stage financing as opposed to going public.
1: Well, I mean I think that if you can raise money in private financing, you know, oftentimes it can both be easier. You like there's advantages to being a private company, right? You can you're not judged on a quarterly basis. And one of the biggest problems with the market today, right, is like you know, short the it's full of short-termism, right? And so as a private company, you certainly can avoid a lot of that because you're not, you know, repriced every millisecond. And you're not repriced based on certain other people's quarterly estimates of what you should be doing. And that's probably that is the biggest advantage of being a private company, right? And so if you can raise the money privately, there's a lot of it, it's attractive to do so.
0: There's that great letter uh, about that Elon wrote to the employees of, of I think it was of SpaceX about like the merits of not going public because you don't have to be subject to the vicissitudes of the public opinion but there are obviously companies where there's been the you know the suggestion that oh if this company would have would have gone public then they might have avoided certain miscreant behavior so that you know there's a there's a trade-off there between you know maybe the 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 public facing behavior that you would have as a company and how that could be uh, a valuable check on company behavior. Do you,
1: do you agree with that sentiment that, that it can be a, a valuable check on behavior within the company? Maybe, but I rely on companies that have that internally, no matter what, right? I think that, that, that the times where it's a company behaving badly because it's private and not public, I think that's like the extreme minority of companies. So no, I don't think it's like, oh, if companies all went public, that they would behaving they would be behaving better. And if they're private, they don't behave well. No, I think it's an extreme minority of companies that would not be trying to hold themselves in the you know, highest regard just because they're private. Do you sense that that is an issue that when a, co- a company goes public, the the
0: vicissitudes of the market are a, a serious distraction internally?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you have employees watching a stock price and when your stock price is going up and down based on maybe nothing having to do with the long-term health of your company but maybe some decision that you made actually to benefit the long-term but cost you a little bit in the short-term, yeah, that's extremely. that can be extremely detrimental.
0: When you play board games or card games, table presence is is a relevant factor. So some people have a poker face. Other people are more emotive. They're con- consciously emotive. I noticed that investors have their own forms of body language and facial expressions, and sometimes they, they, they seem to consciously... Affect certain body language and and facial expressions, uh, like in, in meetings with people. Is this an inevitable aspect of the game of, of venture investing, or can you just be yourself
1: in a meeting? I don't know how to answer that. I think you're, it's probably best to ask that question to a bunch of the entrepreneurs that have talked to hmm. to me or to others. I don't. I am just myself in these meetings. That being said, I have no idea if I have a tell, <laughs> you know, to put it back into poker terminology in these meetings. And, you know, I just try and be myself in all of these meetings. But you, it's probably a, a question better for, for the entrepreneur than for me. Understood. I don't talk to very many venture capitalists. <laughs> okay. One edge that Founders Fund
0: has is, I, I think at least, an ability to ignore Taboos when it can be profitable. Maybe taboo is not the right word, you know, herd mentality.
1: Why is it important to be able to see past taboos or herd mentality? Best investments are the ones that are turned out to be good that other people didn't think were going to be good, right? If everybody thinks that something is amazing and it's the greatest thing, then that price is going to get bid up like crazy. It's going to be super competitive. Your returns are not going to come from that. Your returns are going to come, you know, almost entirely. From the investments that you make where most people do not think it's a good investment and it turns out to be really good. Because that's where your huge multiples are going to come from in venture. And have you ever passed on a profitable opportunity because you thought it would be too taboo? Have I passed on a profitable opportunity because I thought it would be too taboo? Too taboo or too against my own personal uh, taboo, right? Like I don't really... Take it how you want. My Sure. I've passed on things because it wasn't. it didn't fit with me personally. Mm. But I've not passed on anything because I thought the echo chamber would thought it would be too taboo. I've read Zero to One a number of times and I
0: I found the, the book pretty uh, influential. It kind of changed my thinking in, in a lot of ways. And, I, and one of the things that I found valuable about it was it talks about certain herd mentalities in in society and and reflects how to invest based off of the existence of those herd mentalities. There are certain herd mentalities that are important, though. How do you identify the herd mentalities in society that are important versus the ones that are just legacy code that we're running as humans?
1: I mean, you have to examine this on a case by case basis, just because something is contrarian does not make it right. (laughs) right? So the key thing in investing is to be both contrarian and right. I mean, there's often cases where the echo chamber is going to be right. And there's a lot of cases where the echo chamber is going to be wrong. The goal is not to just always go against the echo chamber. The idea is to just focus on where, wow, I just believe this thing is going to work, even though it flies in the face of what other people believe. And that is a hard skill. Right. You have to be able to first of all, you have to be willing to be unpopular, um, which not everybody is willing to do. In fact, one of the questions that I often ask candidates is like, are you willing to do something that you may be that may put you in an uncomfortable position with your friends because they don't agree with you on something? And you've got to be willing to make those kinds of decisions. That being said, the most important thing is to be right <laughs> in venture, whether it's a consensus or a contrarian, the most important thing is to be right.
0: Has that happened to you where you've made investments or been in situations where you've been
1: judged by personal
0: friends based off of your professional activity?
1: Oh, sure. But I even mean just mean professionally, right? Like when we, I remember when we made the, when we initially made the SpaceX investment in 2008, we had some potential LPs who were looking at our fund and had passed on our fund at that time, wrote us a letter saying, Oh, this is why we passed on you guys that SpaceX investment will never work. it's ridiculous. You guys just t- literally took your whole institutional capital and threw it all away. <laughs> so we framed that letter and, and If you look at SpaceX today, it would seem like a uh, a more
0: reasonable or you know grounded in in reality investment than some of the more crazy or far flung ideas that might get funded today so in other words, I think like deep tech or frontier tech has become more fashionable or, or more uh, maybe more people are, are feeling comfortable to start companies within that quote frontier type of sector. Can you talk about it like what is at the, the, the fringes of the frontier? What is the stuff that's like just
1: on the edge of like what you're willing to invest in today, the crazier stuff? I don't know, but like if, mo- if everybody is trying to do the frontier tech thing, then either a, don't do that or B just you have to be better than them at that. And fortunately on the frontier tech stuff, right, it's actually not easy. <laughs> and so, you know, we've looked we still do a lot of actual therapeutic biotechnology. I still don't think a lot of Silicon Valley venture, you know, non-healthcare venture is doing that. People do stuff frankly stuff like Emerald Cloud Lab, which I'm also extremely bullish on, but That's more of a consensus thing than actual therapeutic biotech that requires years and years and years of studies and FDA process and all that. That being said, if everybody is doing frontier tech and that's a sexy thing, you'll probably see us doing other stuff.
0: What have you learned about investing in biotech companies that you wish you would have known at the beginning of your investments in biotech?
1: Well, I haven't done very much biotech investing. And the way that I look at biotech investing is identically to how I look at tech investing, which is what I just described to you with, you know, Is it a big market? Often in biotech, that part is a given, right? Like if you're going for, oh, we're going to cure cancer. I mean, this is a big market, right? So often in biotech, they don't fail that checkmark, you know, that checkbox. Does it have an existing moat? And that can be because they have some sort of tech or that can be because they have some sort of business relationship. Who knows, right? But that's an interesting question in biotech. But I think that the thing that most biotechs fail on or that they fail my investment criteria on is does it have a team that can actually take them from that moat to the big market. And we've seen very, very few of those. We've seen one big one that could, and we backed the truck into that company.
0: I think in Zero to One, Peter Thiel writes about the fact that the biotech companies are oftentimes led by people who come from from a lot of time in, in academia, and it leads to some hedged thinking that is... Less valuable in the startup space than it might be in the uh, well-defined academic
1: space. What are the
0: criticisms of the teams that that you have, generally speaking?
1: Again, it's all idiosyncratic. Mm. It's just it's it's got to be a holistic question for this given team. like do I think this team can take it from whatever existing vote they have to the strategic endpoint? And a lot of times, Maybe it's because they're going to move too methodically, but a lot of times that's important in biotech to move methodically, right? It's hard to describe what that is. We've tried to put into words what a Founders Fund founder is several times, and we failed every single time. So it's just more along the lines of, we know it when we see it.
0: There's this notion of diversification that is emphasized. If it feels like if you're growing up as a kid, you get drilled into that diversification is the key to investing. But it It seems like doubling down more aggressively in the bets that matter is a more important aspect of investing. Why is it that we've developed this notion that diversification is more important than emphasis on a specific core competency?
1: When you don't know things or when you're just kind of throwing at dartboards, diversification probably is your best strategy. When if you're just looking to take something that you think you know that other people don't, Right, then that's the is very much not the right strategy. Right, so it's a matter of what aspect of you're playing in. Like you know, like I said, I don't do any short term investing. So if I was going to put any money in the short term, you know, asset class, I would probably want that diversified also because I don't know what I'm doing. But in the spaces where you kind of are the shark at the table or you know what you're doing, yeah, the the right strategy to maximize profits is to, in my opinion, to you know, be be, be very concentrated. And we've done that. And we've done that, I think, better than anybody.
0: We grow up with ideas that diversification is also important in education. You're on the board of Alt School. As I understand, one of the main appeals of Alt School is that kids going to an Alt School are entitled to double down on topics that they may be interested in. What have been the results of, of kids when they when they are able to double down as they like to as opposed to had this forced diversification?
1: I would not even equate this to old school. I would equate this to things like Montessori school that have been around for a very, very, very long time. And I think the results from you know Montessori style of education have been fantastic for some kids. Just like in anything else, I don't think that there's one right answer. And so I think for some kids and you know, you're going to know your kid better than anybody else. For some children, like truly doubling down on what they are good at is the right strategy for them. For some other children, like more broad-based exposure is probably correct. There's not one right answer, but certainly things like Montessori has done a very good job for a very long time.
0: One company that that I am interested in a lot relative to the amount of, of public information about it is Palantir. And one thing that people misunderstand about Palantir is that the company actually cares deeply about privacy and it tries to define the cutting edge of security technology because they're at the cutting edge. And so if they're at the cutting edge of security technology, they can some ex- to some extent police what is allowable at the cutting edge. And this, this idea is rarely explored because people don't really talk about the fact that, you know, having an honest conversation about privacy and technology, it's, it's not really possible these days. You, it, it seems taboo to even have an honest conversation about privacy and technology. Why is that? Why is it taboo to have an honest conversation about privacy and technology?
1: Oh, man, I'm not going to get started on that one. Let's just say that you clearly know how to think outside the echo chamber. <laughs> and internally at Founders Fund, one of the things that's made us great is that we all always also have internal conversations that are very much outside the echo chamber. Whether I'm happy to discuss those in a very public forum like this is a completely <laughs> other question so <laughs> but, Fair enough. Uh, but, good, but good question <laughs> and this is actually w-
0: another <laughs> one of the things that <laughs> that i liked about zero to one is he talks about the fictional retellings that we over index on so like 1984 for example is is one of this these things that you know gets equated to to uh, you know a, a world with with technology that, you know, is, is, is monitoring you all the time. What are the fictional ideas that we over-index on from your point of view?
1: I don't really talk about macro theses and macro areas okay. very often, right? Like what I call, I call myself a very reactive venture capitalist, meaning that I'm open to any ideas and anything that comes in the door. And the reason this is relevant to your question is that I do, I spend less time philosophizing on the macro state of things um, because they're not relevant to finding a good company, right? Like in order to be truly open to any company that walks in your door, it also means not having any preconceived notions about how the world should look, needs to look, does look, or anything like that. So I spend less time focusing on macro questions and philosophical questions than I do about companies.
0: Okay, well, a lot of the people who have been been influenced to to create, you know, some of these quote-unquote frontier technology companies, a lot of them were influenced by, by science fiction books, things like Snow Crash or Neuromancer. We're now at a place where we can foresee a lot of this technology being built in actuality. Today, is it a waste of time to spend your hours reading fiction? Should you spend all of your time reading nonfiction?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I don't think it's a waste of anybody's time. In fact, I think that's where the innovators get their best ideas uh, from reading stuff and then expanding on that and having an idea and having a spark and, you know, philosophizing. I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily factor into my investment decisions. Mm. I'm not an entrepreneur, right? I Again, I come back to... I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at and I am not good at operating a company and I'm not a company visionary, right? But I do I think it's fantastic for those people to be you know have sparks, of course. It's just less it's less important for me in what I do.
0: Okay, that's interesting admission because there's a lot of venture firms
1: that will actively say we only hire operators. Is that a mistake? I mean, having any dogmatic blanket rule I think is almost always a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. I think that you never know where the next best company is going to come from. You never know where your next best hire is going to come from. You don't know what the right answer is. And people who claim, oh, it's this one way, I mean, I disagree with that. So we started this conversation talking about
0: board games. How do you decide what board games you like and which ones you dislike? What are the features of a good board game?
1: Yeah, I don't like board games unless they're quick. I don't like board games with too much luck. (laughs) So my favorite, if they're quick, that's fine. But the board games I find myself playing the most are the ones that have very minimal luck or luck that can be mitigated to a large extent. Or if they have a lot of luck, i.e. dice rolls, if they're a five minute game, that's fine. (laughs) But the worst games in my mind are the ones that take 10 hours and where dice is deciding most things, because 10 hours is not even necessarily enough for the dice to smooth out the variance, yet it's such a long game to, wear, to have variance be dominant.
0: Although in many of these games, variance is only dominant to the extent that it affects the outcome in terms of win or loss. You can still have a game that is high variance, that has very interesting and productive decisions in an atomic sense so are you saying that winning or losing is an important factor of a game to you
1: yes (laughs) yes i'm saying winning or losing it is important factor of a game for me i like to be able to figure out okay how can i play better and actually win versus oh how can i roll the dice better
0: there's been massive innovation in board games and deck building games in the last several years do you have any particular notion for why that happened
1: I think more people started playing it and playing these types of games in the late nineties and around the turn of the century. And that means that there's more money in it. And that means more people can be rewarded for their skills in designing these games. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. So to conclude cloud
0: nine, that's a business you invest in that's, that's related to games. What insights, what other insights has that given you about the development of gaming that will occur in the future?
1: About the development of gaming, not much. I think Cloud9 is awesome because we're also an example of reactive and whatever the best game is, we are going to have the best teams, right? If there's some, if there's a game out there that takes off and is a good esport and becomes very popular, we're totally open to that. And we're going to put together the best team in that space, regardless of having a Thesis of, oh, we will only play Battle Royale. Oh, we will only play first person shooter. No, we're gonna take whatever kind of games get developed and put together the best teams on Earth for those games. People seem to age out of
0: the esports business quite rapidly. Are there any esports games you've seen where older players tend to do better? Magic the Gathering? I don't know.
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> there I, we go. I, I don't know why that for the pure strategic games, I mean I don't necessarily know why that would be, nor would I Mm -hmm. count on that being the case forever, right? I mean, there's probably something to be said for hand-eye coordination and dexterity being a gift of younger people, right? In the same way that it is in anything. For this pure strategic games, for Hearthstone, if you will, as long as you're willing to adapt or die, then I see no reason for that trend to continue magic versus hearthstone which one do you prefer (laughs) how should i answer that question we have a hearthstone team we don't have a magic team so (laughs) hearthstone (laughs) it is faster it is
0: indeed faster brian singerman thanks for coming on software engineering daily it's been great talking to you all right thanks jeff
1: wow